All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And uh, we're going to continue on our trek. When we left the Apostle Paul the last time, of course, he had just went through a major tumult, as was his custom. Uh, Paul either caused revolt or revival, sometimes both in the same day and amongst the same people. So uh, it was very interesting, of course, but by the time the worshipers of Diana were in a major uproar, one of the town chieftains came in and compromise prevailed, and that's pretty much where we left it off. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 20. And after the uproar ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. So Paul had been in Ephesus, as most of you know, for three years. And like I said, as was his case, revolt or revival happened. And of course, this last one, this revolt, of course, was probably one of the worst as far as the number of people involved and the chaos of the whole situation. Nobody even knew why they were there, and one was screaming one thing. I mean, it was just, they just hated what he had to say that much. What was he saying? What was Paul saying that would have caused such an uproar? The grace of God. The simplicity of the gospel. When you talk about how simple the gospel really is, and we're going to get to that, I can't wait to, we're going to have a few, chat, few, few verses, we're going to get to talk about the simplicity of the gospel. Paul was even concerned later on in his journeys when he told the men, I, I'm concerned that when I leave, that grievous wolves will come in preaching one thing or the other, and remove you, he said, from the simplicity that is of the gospel. It's simple. But so often our intellect, our human pride, keeps us from accepting the simple, vicarious life that we can have in Jesus Christ. And that's all Paul was talking about. This causes men to rebel or to embrace. If you're smart, you embrace it. You realize of your own accord you can do nothing. Your own wretchedness. When you come to that understanding, you'll embrace the gospel of grace. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem. And he was taking an offering, of course, from the Gentile churches as we had looked at. And most of you know the church in Jerusalem had become exceedingly poor because they had tried the socialistic experiment, communism, if you will. That's what they tried and thought that God had led them in that direction. And obviously God had not. You can always tell when the Lord is leading. Why? You can write this one down in your books if you haven't already. And if you're listening by radio, take note of it. Where God guides, God provides. What a simple motto to go by, but it's absolute fact. Where God guides, God provides. Now, you can go by slick actions and call that the provision of God. I don't. I don't look for outside sources to fund anything. I look for God to fund it. When Calvary Chapel of, of Zanesville, Ohio started many, many years ago, I was not sure that it was supposed to be there. I was never, it was never intended to be a church at all. I was a businessman, as most of you know. I, was a, I owned a laboratory, a very successful laboratory. And I was part of a team of owners and co-founders, and we were, you know, involved in that. We were all Christians, but the thought of a church popping out of that never, never dawned on any of us. But nonetheless, to make a long story short, that's exactly what happened. But in the verse, first, for the first two or three years, I wasn't sure. that the, I, I was real leery that it was something that we were doing to make it happen, you see. And so I came up with this idea. Nobody told me to do it. And I thought, Lord, if this is really you, I need to know for my own sake. Because one, I didn't want to pastor a church. I didn't want it. I, I wound up in that situation, but I really didn't feel 
feel. And of course, we know we don't walk by feelings, but at that moment, I was. I didn't feel called to it. I had tried the pastor thing back in the 80s and found it to be a miserable heartbreak. <laughs> That's a whole other story, and I'll talk about it some other time. But I didn't like it. So this time around, I thought, I don't want no more of that, you know. I've been there and bought the T-shirt, and that concert stunk. You know, I didn't want it. And so I needed to know for a fact that it was God. And I thought, well, what is the only thing, Lord, that I can look at that I'll know that it's you? And the first thing that jumped to my money, my was money. Hmm. So I remember telling one of my associates at the time, I said, here's what we won't do. We will not take up offerings. We will not pass a plate at Calvary Chapel. I'm not going to do it. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to put a box in the back. And we will not mention it. Put a little sign over it, you know, the, the tithes and offerings. But other than that, there'll be no mention of it. Because if God doesn't provide through the people, moving upon their hearts and letting them give hilariously, as the Bible teaches, I'm not going to stand up here and, and try to make it happen. I'm just not going to do it. And, of course, the Lord provided People gave. And it always astounded me. It was always amazing. But that's how you know. Where God guides, God provides. And it won't be because you had to beg and ask and plead and, you know, put up the thermometers with the giving thing. You know what I'm saying? I've seen it done. If you, you know, I'm talking to some of my brother pastors who are listening to my show. If you want to do that, do it. I'm not knocking you in it. I'm saying I wouldn't do it. I think God gets more glory when nothing is mentioned and yet God provides anyway. When I don't have to do the things that I think has to be done to prop up a particular ministry. I love it when the Lord comes in, when nothing is said. You know, I've told the story a million times, but when it comes to this issue, I think it needs to be repeated. You know, I was $25,000 away from finishing a radio station that was going to be dedicated to what? to teaching the Word of God. That was all we were going to do. A pure teaching station with pastor after pastor, Dr. Jeremiah, Dr. You know, Chuck Smith, all these guys, one after the other, were going to be teaching the Word of God 24-7. And I was $25,000 short of having a transmitter. And I wasn't worried. We had never asked for a dime. The, most of it was there. It was all done. The studios, everything was beautiful, except it was a car without an engine. You know, it was a beautiful automobile, but you couldn't drive it. And one night I was sitting in my house and in the living room just preparing for my Wednesday night study. Phone rang. And here was a brother in the Lord who I had very little acquaintance with, only through business, and then only on the phone. I had become acquaintance with him, and uh, he was a southern boy, and some of you know the, the story, and he said... Uh, the Lord told me to call you, Doug. And I said, why? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> he said, is there something you need, brother? And without hesitation, I said, the only thing I need at this moment is $25,000. What do you need that for? I said, well, we got this radio station that needs a transmitter. It, the body's there, brother, but it don't have a heart. We got to have a heart for that thing. Should I overnight that to you? See, that's how God provides. I didn't have to put up the thermometers and everything else. And I don't think God, you know, touched Doug Copen because he's something special. Quite the opposite, in spite of me. I just trust the Lord. I figure if God is going to guide me, he's going to provide for those things. And so often, you know, we refer to or we resort to other things, you know, uh, to seemingly bolster that. But God always provides and so the church there in Jerusalem had not learned that lesson. So they fell back, you know, on the socialistic program, which failed miserably, you see. And so Paul was wanting to get back there and to take this offering to the churches in Jerusalem to help them out, which is great. I think Paul was wanting to show the solidarity of the Christian church at that time because basically it was broken up into Jew and Gentile. Paul understood that we were all one in Christ. And it was being preached, but it was still perceived at that moment as the Gentile church, the Jewish church. Paul wanted to show them that the Gentiles really did care 
And so he was taking up this offering and going to take it back to them. Look at verse 2. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So Paul undoubtedly wanted to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover, as I just said. And at that particular time, there would have been this mass movement, if you will, of Jews back to Jerusalem during the Passover. And they came from all over. It wasn't like, you know, sometimes we think of Jews, and even today, I think, when we think of Jewish people, we think of the Jews, you know, basically in Israel. But in reality... The Jews were dispersed from Israel for 2,000 years. Matter of fact, the Lord, in one of his prophecies that he gave us, he said that the people would be out of the land for two days. And on the third day, I will bring them back into the land of Israel. We're told that to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. They were out of the land for 2,000 years, and at the beginning of that third millennium, God brought them back into the land of Israel. And so... There are a lot of Jews in Israel, but they're still over all the place. You know, they're, they're, they're all over the world. But at this particular time, there would have been this mass return from all over the world, and they would have been traveling by ship. Paul hears about this plot. I'm assuming that he didn't want to be thrown overboard in a ship out in the middle. And so being the wise soul that he was, Paul decides to go back up through Macedonia by land. He's going to return that way rather than getting caught, like I said, in the middle of the ocean or the sea there and finding himself on the wrong side of the, of the oars. Look at verse 4. And they're accompanying him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychius and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. I want to, you notice the word us here, you know, us and we. You know, this is Luke once again is talking about. So Luke is with these guys. So even though he doesn't mention himself, he does use this, this, this term. And so we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them in, to Troas in five days and where we abode for seven days. You know, because Paul backtracked in order to avoid calamity, they spent Passover there in Philippi and were there until the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. <clears throat> First thing I want to, before I attack that one, let's talk about the first day of the week. There has always been an enormous amount of hubbub, if you will, about which day of the week we should worship on. Certain people, Seventh-day Adventist, and other sects of Christianity, insist that the Sabbath, which is Saturday, for those of you who think it's Sunday, it is not. The Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day. The first day of the week is Sunday. Always has been. So, but there's those who want to convince us that Sunday was instituted really by Constantine. You know who Constantine was. We, some people consider him actually the first pope rather than Peter. And Constantine was, you know, the emperor of Rome. And under Constantine, Christianity had been normalized. A lot of that was good. A lot of it was not. Constantine did institute a lot of craziness. This is a guy who, <laughs> whether it's true or not, we don't know. But his conversion basically happened when he was going to war. And he looked up into the clouds and he saw the sign of the cross, you know. And somehow that converted, and then he winds up converting his whole army by baptizing him from the wall of his palace. It's 
you know, th threw a little water over the thing and baptized all of them, supposedly. But it gets much worse than that. But Constantine, I don't want to get into that tonight. It's a very long story. But some people believe, they believe that Constantine was the one who instituted that. But really, history doesn't bear that out. The fact is, is that from the very first chapter of Acts, we see the disciples gathering on the first day of the week. But as we study through the Bible, and as we listen to the Apostle Paul, and when we get to Romans, you know, there, there in chapter 14, you don't have to just write it down, it's 14.5. You know, Paul says, one man esteems one day above another. Another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. The, the fact is, is that it really doesn't matter which day of the week we worship on. It only matters that we worship. As a matter of fact, I remember a Calvary Chapel pastor, this has been a few years back, very famous man, if I mention him, you'd probably know him even if you didn't realize he was from Calvary Chapel. But I'll leave him anonymous. I remember being involved in a discussion with him and a couple other pastors. We were actually live online, and it was just between pastors. And he made the comment, he says, you know, I've given it great thought and prayer. He said, I think if I ever started another church... I think instead of having a Sunday morning, I would have a Sabbath service. And you'd have thought that he wrenched through the screen and slapped everybody's mother. Because the rest of the pastors went berserk on him. Went absolutely crazy. What? You know, as though he had turned Jewish or something. You know. And he went, no, 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 no. He's going to... The fact is, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. To him, he felt more at ease if he was to have done a Sabbath service. That's fine. That's great. You know? But it really doesn't matter. Paul said, one man esteems one day above another. Now, there are those, like I said, of our Seventh-day Adventist friends, you know, Ellen G. White, who wrote The Great Controversy, which is a very strange book, had a very oddball. They said, you, when you're dealing with Gentiles, you have to get this into your head. So often, Gentiles just don't understand the gospel. I, that sounds crazy because they've had it for centuries, since the time of Paul. But it's been so convoluted because it is so foreign to their ears that when people like Ellen G. White and so many others come along, they cannot see the separate, they don't understand what Jesus did. They don't understand that Jesus fulfilled the law, therefore taking it out of the way. They don't grasp it. So they look at, you know, the, she even declared that anybody who worshipped on Sunday had the mark of the beast. This is how crazy Ellen G. White, and they still, many of their churches adhere to her writings. It's absolute nuts. But they want to say, well, it was instituted by Constantine, or it was a Catholic church thing, or it was this, you know, and God, you know, God demands it. And of course, they want to quote Exodus 31, 16. And let me give it to you. He says, wherefore the children of Israel, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout all their generations for a perpetual covenant. As you can see from the scriptures, the Sabbath only applies to Jews. Only. It was a perpetual covenant between them and God. Now there are those, even in the Orthodox Church, who teach things that they ought not. Saying that the Gentile church now, of course, has supplanted the nation of Israel and that now the Gentile church is actually the true Israel. This is what we call replacement theology. And so they look at all the blessings that God has promised to the Jewish people through Abraham. And they place those blessings upon the Gentiles. I got news for you. Paul the Apostle who said, is God done with his people? God forbid. If they will turn from their unbelief, they shall be grafted in again. God has not forsaken his people. And those that still bless Israel, God will bless. And those that curse Israel, God will deal with. And as he always has. History bears it out. Go back and look. 
every nation that has ever raised a hand to the nation of Israel has fallen from world status. Every time. God still has his covenant with Israel. But how does the Jews have to come to him? They still have to come through Jesus Christ. The gospel is to everyone. But that perpetual thing of the Sabbath was given only as a covenant between God and Israel. It's no longer applicable. Why? Because we are now under a new covenant as Jesus has brought about for all mankind. Before the cross, you've heard me say it a million times, there were two types of people. There was Jew and there was Gentile. But after the cross, there was Jew, Gentile, and the church, which is made up of Jew, Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, Greek. It's everybody that's in Christ. For Christ is in them all if they are believers. And we're all one in him. That's the beauty of God and Jesus Christ and what he does when he comes into our lives. Colossians 3.11 ought to be a statement that every Christian adheres to. We know that we're all one in Christ. Christ is in all, or, but Christ is all, excuse me, and in all. So what day of the week should we worship on? Whatever day you want. Don't make it a law, though. Don't make it something that you have to. I worship on the first day of the week. Why? Because the disciples gathered on the first day of the week. One of the early church fathers even stated that because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, that it seemed appropriate. Now, I'm not always in agreement with Tertullian, is who I'm quoting from, but the fact is, is that that made sense. It was something that they said, hey, Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Sounds like a good time to get together and break some bread. And you notice he says when they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. The first bread that they broke was the bread of life. That's, that's the beauty of it. When these guys got together to, to fellowship, to worship, what we're doing right now, they first broke the bread of life. They went through the scriptures. And then they broke the bread of the staff of life. You know, bread. And they enjoyed that together. They had dinner together. Which is, and I always loved that. You know, when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel, we didn't call it Calvary Chapel for nothing. We took that to heart. We really like fellowshipping, and every Christian should. Let's look at verse 8. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being falling into a deep sleep, I don't mean to laugh. It gets funnier. And as Paul was long preaching, long, if you take a notes, underline that, long preaching, he sank down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him, said, trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. I do find a bit of humor in this, in this passage. I do. Not in poor Eutychus dying. Now, bear with me. First off, I want, to, I want to explain something. There are those out there, and guys I love, I've heard explain this, this verse, okay? Here's what they'll say. They'll say, well, poor Eutychus, you know, you see, he actually succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. Why? Listen, because of all the candles. Yeah. This, no, some of the guys I love, I mean, I respect these men, and they actually... They adhered to this. Now listen to me. Let me give you the deep theological reason why Eutychus fell out of the window. Now this is deep, but I want you to write this down because I'm going to use some big terms. He was bored. He was bored stiff. And he became stiff because he died from it. He was bored. Listen, one of the, here's what the, my, my brother pastors forget. Paul the apostle said of his own preaching, when I came to you, brethren, I came not with excellency of speech. Paul was not a preacher. He wasn't. Paul was a writer, and he admitted it. Even the Corinthians, when we get to that book, are going to say, well, you know, his writings are powerful, but his presence is weak. Ah, he's not a very good preacher, but he can write a good epistle, though. And I have to admit, not only is 
a problem when a guy's not a good preacher. It's when he's not a good preacher and he likes to do it for a long time. <laughs> that is a problem. Poor Eutychus. Here he is sitting in the window. And Paul is preaching until midnight. Now I have been accused of being long-winded. I don't hold a candle to Paul. No pun intended. And there was plenty of candles up there. But it wasn't causing carbon dioxide because nobody else supposedly succumbed to it. Poor Eutychus did though. Now the funny part is what happens next. Now I got to admit if I'm preaching and, and it's in a, you know, an upper room and one of the young guys is sitting in the window and he falls out the window because I was preaching too long and he, well, he gets killed. That's apt to put a little kink in your sermon. You know what I'm saying? That'll put, you know, that'll break your chain of thought, I would think. You know, it will break your chain of thought. It's like, hey, Eutychus is gone. Where'd he go? He's down, uh, and they're looking out the window going, it ain't good. And so they go down and they, oh man, he's dead. You know, and so all the people start weeping and wailing. Now Paul has got all the attention, and I'm sure Paul was being sympathetic to a point. Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking on the inside, Paul's probably going, oh, that's great. Are you happy, Eutychus? Now you got all the attention. It's all off Jesus. Now it's all on you. So what's Paul do? Verse 11. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked for a long while, even until the break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and was not a little comforted. Paul goes down, resurrects this kid, says, don't trouble yourself, his life's in him. What does Paul do? Does he sit there and go, are you okay, Eutychus? You're okay now, right, son? You know, get this boy some stuff. Let's call the paramedics. Let's make sure he's all right. No, he, Paul goes right back upstairs and goes, hey, you got any food? Yeah, let's break some bread. After he gets done, he's going, oh, yeah, where did I leave off at? That's right, verse 5. <laughs> You know, and he just continues his sermon, and he continues his sermon till the break of day. And then he leaves. He doesn't even take a break. I've heard a lot of things said about the Apostle Paul, about his physical stamina. I got to be honest with you. It doesn't sound to me like he lacked for it. The guy could preach forever. And evidently go long time without sleep. And they loved him for it. They loved him. The guys that listened to Paul loved Paul. And it wasn't, and of course you know I'm joking about his response to you. Because I mean, you know, Paul had compassion on the kid. And God granted this miracle. Just as a side note, I'll throw this one in for free. There in verse 12, it says, and they were not a little comforted. You notice it says they were not a little comforted. It doesn't say that Eutychus was comforted. i got to be honest with you. If I'd have been this kid, and Paul is just putting me to sleep after listening to him for several hours, and I fall out the window, and I break my neck, and I die. All of a sudden, you know, I find myself, because the body says, you know, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I find myself instantaneously standing in the presence of the one who lived for me and died for me, rose from the dead, and is, you know, interceding for me. And I'm, I'm standing in his presence, knelt at his feet. And all of a sudden, I hear the Lord say, hey, Eutychus, I really hate to do this. But man, they really miss you. And they're really, they're really messing up Paul's sermon. And you know, he really needs to say, you got to go back. I got to be honest, when I opened my eyes and people were standing around, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not, because I had some of the worst parts already done over, that is moving from this life to the next. And I had to come back. When you see resurrection in the Bible, I do think it's interesting that the only people who are comforted are the ones who were missing them, you know. 
Because man, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you hear that Doug Copen has went, okay, don't pray for me to be resurrected, okay? Just let me go because I'll be done. I'll be happy. I know my wife will probably be crying. She'll get over it, okay? She'll get over it. Just let it go, man, you know, because I, once I'm there, I want to stay. But it's interesting to me that they were not a little comforted. They were overjoyed, verse 13. And we went before to ship and sailed to Azos, there intending to take in Paul. For so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. I've always found it interesting. The trip from Troas to Asos is 20 miles by land, 30 miles by sea. So it's 10 miles longer if you take the boat. Paul sent Luke and the rest of them by boat. He decides he's going to walk. Now, I've got to be honest with you. That's a 20-mile hike. And even when I was in the Army, we'd do those 20-mile force marches. You know what I'm talking about, Chief? You know, that's a long walk. That's a long walk. And I have wondered, and of course I'm speculating, so you can come up with your own idea on this, but I, I think Paul walked because for some reason there is a time, sometimes you just got to get alone with the Lord. And even though you love people and you love them and you want to be around them, sometimes you just have to get alone with God. And I think many ministers make that mistake. Um, I probably did in the past make the same mistake myself in that you, you just keep giving and giving and giving and giving and you just keep and you never take a moment or time to just by yourself go and spend some time because how long would it have taken Paul to walk 20 miles? I don't know. Might have taken him a day or two. I mean um, who knows? But I'm sure that he was using that time as a refreshing to be alone with, with Jesus. I, I, just, I just think that that's probably why he did it, because there's no other good explanation for it. Verse 14, and when he met with us at Asos, we took him in and came to um, Mytilene. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogillion. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia, for he, uh, for he ha uh, hasted, if it were possible for him to be in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to uh, Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now Miletus is approximately 30 miles from Ephesus. And it's from here that Paul sent the messengers to Ephesus to have the elders come down. Evidently, Paul didn't feel he had enough time to go all the way there, make the round trip, and come back. He wanted them to come down and meet him in uh, Miletus. So, verse 18, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in all seasons. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying of weight of the Jews. Paul states that from the first day was he, that he came to Asia, the manner in which he lived among the people was in humility of mind, in serving the Lord. I think it's important to note that Paul saw himself as a servant of the Lord. He saw himself that way. He called himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe it's essential that anyone who is in ministry should maintain an attitude of humility. And so often when we say that, we think that humility is to walk with downcast eyes in a somber stance all the time, you know? Not true. Humility, true humility, is simply to understand that God uses you in spite of you. In spite of your flaws, in spite of the sin, 
that's in our lives. He uses us. He's called us. And he's put us into his service. But having a constant dependency upon Jesus Christ, that, that's, that's true humility. And Paul had it. And every minister of God should. I haven't always been successful at maintaining that mindset, as I'm sure most pastors haven't. But it should be our mindset to have that humility of mind, as Paul said. That's the way it should be done. Look at Colossians. Now, you don't have to go there. I'm going to quote it for you. It's Colossians 3.23. And, and Paul, of course, writing this, he said, Whatsoever you do, do it, in, do it wholeheartedly, as to the Lord and not unto men. Everything we do in the ministry, we have to do as though we are doing it to the Lord. One of the pitfalls, I will say, of the ministry is to become a man-pleaser. And you see it so readily today. It's always been around. I mean, don't make no mistake of that. It's always been around. There are men who stand behind pulpits today who are more concerned with offending someone in the pew than they are with offending God. They're more concerned they're going to say something. So they shape their sermons, you see, as to take into account every sociological division that might be in front of him. Every, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Every division, let me just leave it that way. I mean, they do this, and they're scared to death they're going to offend somebody to the point where some denominations are even telling their pastors to shape their sermons that way. That makes you a man-pleaser. If you're a pastor and you're listening to me, listen to me. If you've done that, that makes you a man-pleaser. You can deny it if you want, but that makes you a man-pleaser. And I'm telling you right now, it's not pleasing to God. What pleases the Lord is the simple delivery of his powerful word. All of it. So often we think of the word of God as, you know, and, and when we sit down to study as, as dining. Come and dine, the Lord said. And I see it, but when we sit down to dine, I don't just want to have green beans. Now, I have to admit, I love green beans. And because this is harvest season, Lord knows I've been eating a lot of them. And they're good. But I don't want just green beans. I want a little bit of everything. I want some protein on my plate. I want a little bit of everything. And the Word of God's like that. And so often, you know, we, we are just looking for the things, or, or pastors seem to think that the people are just looking for things that make them feel good. Well, the Bible makes me feel good. The Word of God, the entire Word of God makes me feel great. But so often it's so simple, it's so easy to fall into that man-pleasing status. Paul says, we need to do it as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Now, everybody wants people to like them. I want people to like me. But not to the point where I'm willing to sit and tell you things that aren't true. Or to hold back from you things that are true. I wouldn't do that to you. My conscience wouldn't let me do that to you. I couldn't. How can you be a studier of the Word of God, a teacher of the Bible, and do that to somebody? It's beyond me. I don't, I don't understand it. When Paul said that he had, had served with humility of mind and with many tears, trials, and tribulations, he was speaking of the reality of his own perspective on himself. Like I said, he was, he was fully aware of, of himself. Paul had a true vision of God. He had a good vision of it. Paul had actually spent three years with Jesus Christ. Never forget that. In his presence. Something that will give you a perspective on your own wretchedness is to be in the presence of a most holy God. When Peter 
there in, in Luke 5, 8, when Peter had a vision of Jesus and what he, who he really was. They were in the boat, and when he saw what Jesus could do, it says that Peter fell to his knees, and he said, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's what it'll draw you to when you have a proper perspective of who Jesus really is. That's how holy he is. That's the way Paul was. A man who understood his own frailty. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul said in the book of Romans. Who shall deliver me from the bondage of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. So he was totally dependent upon the Lord. He served with humility of mind. Look at verse 20. He says, you saw how I lived and how I operated amongst you and, I, and how I kept nothing back that was profitable to you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and that from house to house. So P, Paul was a leader of people. He, he led by what? Example. You notice he said, how I showed you. How I showed you. Paul's preaching was backed up by how he walked. He lived what he believed. What he taught, he did. He wasn't living two different lives. He, he, he absolutely showed them. Now think about that for a moment. You know, Paul found himself in the midst of some groups that were very large and some that were very small, depending upon how long he was there. But during that time, he still lived among them. Enough to be able to say, you saw how I lived. I showed you. I showed you and I taught you from house to house that publicly, which he did. You remember when he was teaching in the school of Tyranus, we talked about that before. He taught there publicly. But then he went from house to house. You got to be hospitable to go from house to house. There has to be fellowship, koinonia. I'll, I'll keep telling this to you until the Lord calls me home. Koinonia, buddy. You know, koinonia means... Fellowship. Fellowship means getting together, not just in the pew, but all the time, you know. Just, if nothing else, just company. <laughs> Come on over. We got something in common. We got the blood of Jesus Christ in common. Come on over, man. Let's have some coin in here. That's what Paul did. That's how they knew what he was. That's how they knew that they could trust him. They had saw him in action. Verse 21 testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit of Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Paul stated that he was uncertain as to where he was going to end up by the time he got to Jerusalem. He wasn't sure what was going to happen there. Except that the Holy Spirit was witnessing that bonds and affliction were awaiting him. But look what he says in verse 24. But none of these things move me. Neither can count I my life as dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, if you take a note, you need to underline that, the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's one and only desire was to finish the course with joy. Paul couldn't be moved by the thought of prison or of death. His drive was to finish the course that God had set before him. In his very last epistle that he wrote to Timothy, just prior to being beheaded, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not me only, but all unto all them 
also that love his appearing. Hmm. I've always been inspired by Paul's commitment. His unwavering. And his acceptance of finishing the course. When Paul came to the moment of his death, he didn't pull a Hezekiah and beg for another few more years. You know, the work's not done, Lord, you know. Why? Because Paul knew that God was in control. When we say Lord, when we call Jesus Lord, we're saying that he is the director of my life. He is calling the shots. And that whatever might succumb, that I might succumb to, whatever that might be, it is in the will of God. I understand the sovereignty of God. I am submitted to it. I am in subjection to it. And I'm good with that. Because Jesus sees farther down the road. I can't see 10 seconds in front of mine. So I trust that he knows what he's doing. I don't always know what he's doing. But I trust that he knows what he's doing. And I know that he does. And Paul did. Paul had that trust. He was committed to it. Another thing that Paul never wavered from, even in the light of opposition, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles, was testifying the gospel of the grace of God. One thing that many people don't understand is the uniqueness of Paul's gospel of the grace of God. It's unique. It's very unique. In fact, there's two places in Romans and one in 2 Timothy where Paul refers to it as my gospel. My gospel. The gospel of Paul. It's funny because when we think of the gospels, we always think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. (laughs) But the one that has saved people has been the gospel of Paul. Paul's gospel. The gospel of the grace of God. Matter of fact, this is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Paul said, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the gospel of grace. Paul wasn't taught the gospel of grace. He said after he came to the Lord, he didn't go down to Jerusalem, who were apostles before him. He didn't sit around and go, okay, boys, I got my notebook. Lay it on me. What what should I say? Matter of fact, the apostle Peter, later on speaking of Paul, said our brother Paul, who in his letters says many things which are hard to be understood, which the unlearned and the unstable twist and distort to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. But Peter recognized the things that Paul wrote was holy Scripture. That's where the apostles came. So Paul is head and tails above these men, even though he never considered himself that. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Which is why Paul wounds up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. The gospel of the grace of God. He said this was a ministry that Jesus had given him. Jesus was the one not only who had given it, but Jesus had taught it directly to him. So you're getting it firsthand. When Paul writes in the book of Romans, we're not getting some guy's ideas. We're getting the thing that God himself in the person of Jesus Christ gave to Paul directly. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it's so essential that we understand it and that we preach it correctly. Because it's only by that that people are going to be saved. Here recently we've been talking a lot about the grace of God. And one of the verses that was given, and I want to add something to it, and you can turn with it, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11. I'm just going to finish up with this. And you can never go wrong talking about the grace of God. But I want to give you something, maybe another, hopefully some insight. Okay? 
another perspective. Now, I want you to think of grace because there's all kinds of definitions that's been offered for the grace of God. The one that's most prevalent probably out there is unmerited favor. Not bad. It's good. There's all kinds of them. But let me give you one that I think actually fits the heart of the grace of God. When you think of grace, think of it as an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now see, that's accurate. Why? Because it encompasses all of theology in that one acronym. If so many of the older guys, John and George and a few of the other guys I could mention from way back, had grasped that idea, they wouldn't have come to some of the conclusions that they did about the grace of God. It is the God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what it really is. Because Jesus has purchased everything for you, as Paul so eloquently said. But Jesus himself alludes to this, even here in Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 28. Now, who was Jesus speaking to? Jesus was speaking to Jews. Who was he sent to? He even told the woman who was a Gentile who wanted some help. He said, woman, what have I to do with you? I am sent not but unto the tribes of Israel, to the lost children. Why? Because he was a fulfillment of the prophecy that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the fulfillment of that. So Jesus here is actually speaking to the Jews who were under the law. Now, Jesus knew what he came to do. Jesus was now coming to the end of his life, to the end of a perfect life, a life that had kept all 613 laws absolutely to perfection, not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, in oneness with the Father's will. Jesus said, I do always those things which please the Father. But Jesus also knew that because of our great-grandfather Adam, he knew that he was speaking to people who were fallen. People who had wanted the rules and regulations. They asked for them. God didn't want to give them. But they wanted them. They wanted something. God was content to have a marital relationship with them, but they wouldn't have it. They wanted something a little more clad, you see. Give me a contract. Give me some rules and regulations. God said, okay, here you go, 613 of them. Let me see how you do with that. They couldn't keep them. They couldn't do them. And God in his great mercy, in his great love, to save us from our own selves, Jesus speaking to people who had been under the law for so many centuries, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. All those of you who are suffering under a law that you cannot keep, it will not buy you any favor with God. Sacrifices and those things I would not say at the Lord, but a body thou hast prepared for me. God is not satisfied with those things. Jesus told the Jews, he says, look, come unto me, all you that labor in heaven, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The word yoke here, gang, the word yoke here is important that you understand what it means. You know, it means the balance. It is the balance of a scale. So odd because we hear the word yoke and the first thing that comes to our mind, of course, is a yoke of oxen. And that's okay. But here in the Greek, the literal interpretation, the literal meaning of that word actually means the crossbeam of a balance. You understand? You know what a balance looks like, right? You put stuff on this side, you weigh it against this. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, some of your Bibles say, learn from me. Okay? Listen to me. That's a bad translation. It should say, learn of me. 
What Jesus was encouraging them to do was to learn of the purpose of the Messiah, to learn of the course of the Messiah, to learn what the Messiah had come to do. You see, the law was weightier than any obedience that we could ever come up with. So it was against us. It was weighed against us. Matter of fact, in the book of Colossians, it says that those things which were contrary to us, the things, the handwriting of ordinances, those things, Jesus took those and nailed them to his cross, taking them out of the way. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When Jesus is on the other side of the scale, every requirement of God is in balance, you see. The law was against us. The Bible says it is death unto us. It brings death. It does not bring life. It never could. wasn't intended to. The law was given that sin might be ever more sinful, that we would understand its wretchedness and its destructive nature in our lives and make us cry out for someone who could deliver us from it. This is what Jesus was talking about. Come unto me. And he'll balance the scale for you. The word actually simply means to be tied to. The Romans had an interesting way of dealing with prisoners. In certain cases, when people had done things that seemed to be worthy of more punishment than death, they would take a man who is already dead, and they would tie his corpse to the back of another man, the one who was being punished. And they would simply let that rotting flesh hang on him as he walked around trying to live his life with the smell and the stench. I want to suggest something to you, and I want you to hear me out. Paul the Apostle would say that when we come into this world, we come in this world dead in sin. We're dead. From the moment you step out of that womb, you are already dead in sin. When Jesus says, come unto me, take my yoke upon you, bind yourself to me. Did he not know that we were dead in sin? You heard me tell the story here not too long ago in the Old Testament when they were getting rid of the dead man. And they had to get in a hurry and they tossed him in and he fell on the bones of Elijah. And that dead man jumped up, he came to life. Jesus is a quickening spirit. You take a dead man and you tie him to the living God and all of a sudden he becomes alive. He becomes one with the creator. We call it atonement. At one mint is what Jesus brought. This is what he does. This is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what he did for you. There's no better illustration of a vicarious life than we have than what Jesus has done. Because that's what it is. It's vicariousness. He's done for us what we could not do. He bore all that we could not bear. And when we come to him and we take that yoke upon us by faith alone, then we are made alive in him. The ashes that we have of our life, he turns into beauty. Turning it around, making it into something beautiful, something useful for the kingdom of God. And just to close out, I want to take you to Romans and turn with me, if you will, there to chapter 5. Chapter 5 has been called one of the greatest chapters in the Bible by many a theologian. Why? Because it is the plain unadulterated gospel of Paul. Straightforward. Here's how it works. This is how it works. And here's why it works. Chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 6. 
And Paul writing, he says, for when we were yet without strength, we were weak, we were lowly, we were wretched, we were dead in sin. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dead in our wretchedness, Christ said, take my yoke upon you. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved through from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Once again, we are justified. We are made righteous by the life of Christ. He purchased us with his blood. If all Jesus had to do was die for us, it would make you saved, but it would not make you righteous. It was his keeping of the law, his perfect life, imputed to you by faith alone that makes you righteous before God. Verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ by whom we now have received the atonement. Atonement. We become one with God. Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world. And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's talking about Jesus. But now, as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense one is may, or many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the Judgment was by one to condemnation, that's Adam, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. Explanation, so simple. Because of Adam's sin, you became a sinner, vicariously. Even though we didn't sin after his manner. We didn't do it. We're his progeny. He passed it on. We have a blood disease, if you will. Because of Adam's disobedience, all were made disobedient. And the, and the penalty of disobedience is death. So we come into this world already dead. We're already dead. We're on our way to hell, if you will. Why? Because we inherited that direction because of our great-great-grandfather. But because of the obedience of one, Jesus Christ. Because he fulfilled all the requirements that he himself, as God Almighty, required. That's what I love about the Lord. He requires perfection to get into heaven. I've had people ask me, Doug, what's required to get into heaven? Perfection. You've got to be perfect. And they always say the same thing. Well, nobody's going in. And I says, and without Jesus Christ, you're absolutely right. But see, Christ has made the way. God didn't just leave us there in despair. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. You want real rest? You want victory? You know, we sing the song, Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Bought me and sought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Truth in that past. Yeah, There's truth in that, that, that hymn. 
But the fact is, is that it's the life of Jesus, his life, that has made me righteous, as Paul so eloquently says in chapter 5. So Jesus lived for me. He did that which I could not do myself. He lived a perfect, righteous life. And because I've placed my faith in him, he has imputed that righteousness to me. And God, in return, has imputed my sin to him, even though he didn't deserve it. I don't deserve what I get from him, and he definitely didn't deserve what he got from me. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what changes people's lives. When I talk to people and I say, hey, doesn't matter how messed up you are. Doesn't matter how messed up you have been. You can have victory over anything. Vicariously. Through Jesus Christ. I'm no longer in bondage. I no longer have a burden. I've laid that burden down a long time ago. I'm no longer dependent upon my own performance as to obtain anything from God. I've obtained all that there is from God by the obedience of one man, and that is Jesus Christ. And I am placing all of my chips on him. And it is a winning bet, my friends, because he has already done it all. And he says, come unto me. Come unto me and I'll give you rest. I will set the balance straight. That's what it really is. When I think of Jesus and his yoke, I think of that balance. I see that beam and the weight of my sin on one side and the law on the other and the law way outweighed it. I could not in any way, shape, or form begin to try to unbalance that or to make it even. But when Jesus steps on it, it all comes into balance. And we become at one with God. Never having to question that again. Never having to revisit that again. Regardless of who throws anything up in my face or whatever I might even in my own self remind myself of. The Lord comes in and he says, yeah, I took care of that a long time ago. The balance was scaled. It was set straight a long, long time ago. Father, we love you. And Lord, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that we have been adopted into this family, Lord Father, by you. And that because you are the heir, Jesus, and because we are now joined to you, we are joint heirs with you. Not because we deserve it, Lord Father, but because you do, and because of your grace, mercy, you have imputed that righteousness unto us by faith alone, and Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, we just ask for your blessing to this day. I ask that you be with those who might be listening by radio, Father, that if there are some who never understood it before, Lord, I pray that you give them understanding even now of all that you have done on their behalf, that they might truly embrace Jesus Christ as their life, as the one who paid the price for them, and as the one who has restored them to at one with you. We love you, and we thank you, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.